case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sig- virtue signaling, fake news crate. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. I'm Matthew McGregor, the campaign's director here at Hope Not Hate. Today, we're giving you another of the webinars recorded in the days after Joe Biden's election victory against Donald Trump. Biden's win was a moment of triumph for anti-fascists everywhere, but it's also an opportunity for us to learn. So Hope Not Hate asked Biden staffers who were involved in mobilizing supporters to tell us about how they did it, what worked, what didn't, and how campaigners here in the UK can learn from what they did. You'll hear from four amazing Biden staffers, but first, you'll hear Hope Not Hate's Afrida Chowdhury. Hi, everyone. I'm Afrida from Hope Not Hate, um, and I'm the Operation Activism Officer. And today we're joined by some awesome people from uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris campaign. And so grateful to have you guys here to speak to our lovely members, our supporters. Um, just before we start, um, I just wanted to put some thank, thank yous out to um, our, as I said, our members, our supporters, and our Hope Action Fund members as well. Without you guys, uh, we wouldn't be able to do our work, especially during this year. Also a big um, shout out to um, uh, 38 Degrees and 89 Up, who's sponsoring this event today. So thank you so much for, um, uh, for joining and for uh, showing up. So without further ado, I just want to present all of the people who are joining today in our panel. Um, we'll start off. Um, also, I just wanted to give some um, give some uh, uh, logistic details about what's going to happen today. So if you have any questions at the end, we have a Q&A button below where you can ask any questions you want, and we'll try to answer them at the end. Um, Please use the chat button as well if you need, want to discuss something, but please use the Q&A to ask questions because it will be hard for me to see the, any question that comes up in the chat. Um, so thank you so much again for joining. Um, so I just wanted to present everyone who's here today. Um, so we're first joined by um, Clark Humphrey. Uh, who's the deputy director for grassroots fundraising. Uh, Clark oversaw all grassroots fundraising for the Biden campaign, having previously served as the online fundraising director for the Democratic National Committee. Uh, she also worked on the online fundraising. Um, um, she also worked on numerous campaigns and advocacy efforts, including uh, for On Us, which was a campaign to end sexual assaults on campuses. Um, Sarah Galvis was the director of social media and audio development, audience development, audio development. Um, uh, Sarah oversaw the Biden's team's social media and digital audience growth uh, efforts. After working in influencer marketing with major YouTubers, Sarah also worked with worked for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election and pivoted the merging private sector marketing techniques with politics. We're also joined by Christian Tom, who was the director of digital partnership. Uh, Christian oversaw the Biden campaign's efforts to partner with other groups around the web. Um, in the past, Christian has also worked for Now This News, which is one of my favorite channels, uh, Twitter, Google, and YouTube. And we are also joined lastly by Alu Kanani, who is the Digital Communication Director. Uh, Alu served as the campaign's Digital Communication Director and previously served in the Obama administration and for the United Nations. Uh, and before that, uh, before joining the Biden team, Alu worked for Pete Buttigieg's 
presidential campaign and I have a really hard time to pronounce that name but yes um again uh thank you everyone for joining um we have another uh, person here joining who's called hope nahe which is my colleague who will oversee any uh, issues that we've been having in, uh, at the start uh so yes i just wanted to start off by asking um our panelists um and if you could talk about um how you managed to defeat trump's campaign um like his much wanted that start digital campaign and we also want to know why um this is also obviously interesting for all our campaigners but especially for our hope not hate for hope not hate because of the role biden's digital campaign had in opposing a racist president uh who was hostile and hateful and used uh, the online to spread disinformation and misinformation especially during this time of covid so yeah any, anyone who wants to start who wants to talk about like how their role in your uh, in your campaign worked to solve these issues and how you actually won against um trump's campaign i'll i'll give the floor to you guys thank you I'm happy to start. Um, so as Afrida mentioned, my name is Clark and I was the deputy digital director on uh, the Joe Biden campaign. I was mostly responsible for raising money, um, which in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic, I think seemed kind of like um, a near impossible feat going into a situation like this in the beginning of the year. Um, I think there was a lot of uncertainty around whether or not uh, supporters would be in a position to give. Obviously, there are a lot of factors that go into living in the middle of the pandemic, one of which is that many people have lost their jobs um, and the rate at which folks have that kind of disposable income to engage with uh, a campaign like ours. Um, we were really worried initially that we would see a lot of um, drop off in, you know, grassroots supporter participation in the work that we were doing. Luckily, though, that seems to actually not have been the case, um, and I think it's largely in part because of how nimble this entire program was and our ability to totally pivot to um, a campaign that was run 100% online. Um, we did see historic levels of engagement in um, donation work and donations to the campaign uh, broke almost every record there is, I think, related to grassroots fundraising online um, in just, you know, total amount of money raised, number of supporters who donated to us, um, the sheer lists that we were able to build and the number of people that we were able to reach on a day-to-day -day basis, um, all because I think we did a lot of really good and strong work. And I know Alok and Sarah can talk more about the messaging piece and how we were able to lean into the fact that we are living in a pandemic and, you know, the, the work that we're doing doesn't exist inside a vacuum. Um, the campaign is not in a bubble. There's real stuff happening in the world and being able to tap into some of those things um, and clearly connect the dots for supporters about what their donation to the, the Biden campaign means for the future of this country and the problems that we're facing today. Um, really, I think actually made it a lot easier for us to make the case for why folks should uh, financially support the campaign. I think it also made it really easier from my standpoint um, and my general like point of view about grassroots fundraising is that building relationships with people that seem like genuine relationships, um, even though, you know, you click a button and maybe you're talking to millions of people at once, um, making those people feel like they're actually part of something special, they're part of a community 
and not treating your supporters necessarily like an ATM, um, you know, giving as much as you're getting from them um, is a huge part of my general philosophy about raising money online and engaging with grassroots supporters. Um, and I think because of who Joe Biden is and because of the program that the programs that all four of us were running on the campaign, it was very easy to build those relationships with people. Um, and that turned into dollars raised. Thank you. I can go yeah, go on. Uh, hey, everyone. I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you all. Um, so on the social and audience growth side, my responsibility was mainly for essentially all of our organic um, work that was going up on our platforms, anything that was owned and operated. So Joe Biden, our Team Joe accounts, um, eventually our Vote Joe um, Instagram account, um, as well as essentially just like any piece of the puzzle where it was an official campaign sort of entity. Um, this did not touch sort of our supporter groups that was run by an online community team um, that was brilliant and did their own thing on places like Slack and Discord and Facebook groups, um, but anything where you would get official messaging from the campaign. Um, and it was an interesting way to set it up because it really allowed my team to drill down into the specifics of how the vice president would be messaging to um, his supporters every single day um, and really giving me the ability to drill down into our core messaging, which is the thing that in the end allowed us to really succeed. Um, we stuck to our message very concretely, um, you know, with the pandemic raging, um, there was no escaping sort of the conversations that were going on online. And of course, the rapid response that was happening via the news every single day um, in terms of things like racial equity, um, in terms of things like um, people losing their health care or uh, people losing their jobs um, in, in the midst of a pandemic. So it was, uh, it was an interesting space um, for me to sort of uh, play in a way with just understanding how do we want the vice president to speak to people, um, particularly in different areas and different spaces, and drilling down into the platforms and making sure that each of those had a very unique um, sort of opportunity to speak to different audiences. And so making sure that we, we understood that, that we created um, sort of a plan for that. And for me in particular, it was staffing up people um, from different industries in particular that maybe came outside of politics to help um, drill down into that and figure out what the best way to do that was based on um, the you know private sector marketing techniques that we know really, really work. Um, and if I'm gonna be honest with you, like I think there, I think people like want to know if there's like a secret sauce um, to what happened and what we did on social. But in reality, it was just like really sticking to our guns in terms of like, what is our messaging? What is the thing that we want um, our, vot our voters to know? People who support us, who don't support us? What do we think that they would want to be hearing in this moment um, of sort of uh, honestly, like chaos um, when it came to the current president of the United States. And then additionally, um, the chaos of the situation in which we were living in, which was a global pandemic. So that's sort of where um, my team really aligned um, and what we were doing on an everyday basis. Cool. Who wants to go next? Hey, everyone. Um, 
My name is Christian Tom. Uh, I've worked on a, a part of this campaign, which was new. Um, I, I don't believe it's existed in campaigns past, but I hope it's something that based on our work becomes a part of uh, the playbook for campaigns in the future. Um, but it was this idea of working on digital partnerships. So um, the, the thrust of the, of the program was all about how do we expand the places that we have a digital presence? How do we get off of our platforms, the ones that Sarah and her team, as she just described, helped to build and make so robust? Um, and so we, we, we did this working with um, net new uh, platforms, so emerging places where we may not have an owned presence that Sarah's team would uh, generally own. So uh, the campaign, for example, worked on TikTok, uh, but not via an at Joe Biden channel. I took kind of like a distributed creator-led approach there to make sure there was like a lot of pro uh, Joe Biden messaging. Uh, we did this with digital publishers. So one of the things that we observed, um, and it's fitting that we're here with an organization called Hope Not Hate, because um, we really wanted to uh, find a counterbalance to some of the like far-right misinformation, hate-filled, racist, sexist factually incorrect language that was coming out from some of the largest publishers on social. Um, and so for, for the Death Star analogy that was made, I think, on the flyer, we wanted to create a rebel alliance. And we did by putting together um, a whole host of digital publishers who are left-leaning progressive voices on Facebook and the internet uh, to, to demonstrate what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris stand for. Um, and then we worked with kind of influencers, uh, creators, uh, people on the internet with large followings to do everything from talking directly to some of our principles, meaning to um, the president-elect and vice president-elect, um, and or more broadly to share in their own voice and tone on their own schedule um, why they're excited to work for or to, to, to vote for, for Joe Biden um, and Kamala Harris. So um, it was, a um, again, a new part of this campaign, but um, yeah, I'll hand it over to Alok. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Olok Kanani. I was the campaign's digital communications director. So I um, really the role was, um, you know, working closely with, um, you know, Sarah and Christian and a whole bunch of others um, on, on a whole bunch of stuff we did. But really, it was about making sure that our online message stays on message and that it's constantly being fine tuned. Um, and at the same time, um, making sure we're really trying to reach voters where they are um, in every way possible. So one, one interesting thing that, um, you know, we've all alluded to the fact that uh, this campaign was run in the midst of the pandemic. All four of us really joined the campaign soon after the pandemic took hold. And that was when the campaign was already pivoting from a primary to a general, but it also had this uh, extra burden of, of then operating to a virtual campaign. And so obviously digital was elevated in that moment. So we joined with kind of the mandate of how do you run a full campaign um, uh, digitally? Um, and so, um, you know, a big piece of that was what Christian alluded to, which is we had to do a lot of new things that hadn't been done before, um, uh, reach people in ways that, you know, might not have been possible before because they weren't on their computers all the time or or just opportunities that might not have been as fruitful before. So it was a big piece of it. The other was, you know, um, we were up against someone and this is mentioned in the title of this event or at least the, the description is we were up against an opponent who 
is really good at this stuff. His campaign, his party, and he are kind of masters of social media and the internet um, and frankly online fundraising and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, and we were up against that with a candidate who I think in the primary, frankly, showed that he wasn't he wasn't the candidate who was best at that stuff. Um, he was the best candidate in lots of other ways. That's why I won. But that wasn't the forte of the campaign. And so we had to do both of those things at once. Um, and so my job ended up being a lot about making sure we stay on message, which was really important to pushing back against um, Trump because, you know, he's someone who famously can't stand message and it became a big um, uh, priority for us to stand message, not only because um, we know that that allows us to continue talking about what voters care about rather than what, you know, the Twitter, the Twitterati care about, but also because um, I think, especially by the end of the campaign, it was clear um the very fact that Joe Biden stayed in message and continued to talk about the issues that matter to voters became a contrast point and a really, really helpful contrast point that I think towards the end of the campaign made it so that we were achieving the reach that Donald Trump was, but we were saying things that moved the needle forward, won voters. He was saying stuff that was alienating voters. So it was a, it was a very kind of uh, a tactic that I would not have normally um, recommended, but for this candidate and this opponent and this type of campaign, it, it kind of was the perfect um, concoction. So um, that was my role. Um, and um, and yeah, I'll keep it brief and, and we can go to questions. Thank you. Um, before we move to questions, um, there's um, also this idea, there's like this, these questions that have been coming up before in our previous um, uh, webinars as well, is that um, what do you think has worked well and what do you think um what do you think could work better in this campaign i mean obviously you won which is great but is there something that you would have done differently in all your uh in your all your campaign strategies um from grassroots to uh influencer to uh, audience is there anything you think you would have done differently I'll start. We can go in reverse order. I'll, I think, you know, there's a million things we we would have and could have and should, probably should have done differently. I think a lot of those things are, are probably pretty small, at least from my my perspective. I was asked a couple of days ago, kind of like, what are the big mistakes you guys made? What are the things you put out to the internet that just failed and, you know, hurt the campaign? And because normally in a campaign, I think we've all experienced that happens. It's a normal part of it. This campaign didn't really do that, and I think you know we can second guess a lot of stuff. Um, and 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 you know, there's a ton of small things. You know, we wish I think that we'd probably uh, I'm going to steal Christian's thunder and also remember us, but like we probably should have gotten into TikTok earlier, for example. We probably should have um, invested in more platforms to steal thunder that aren't Twitter. But um, overall, we ran a campaign that I think made very few mistakes, and that's the kind of campaign that was needed right now. Um, against someone who made a ton of mistakes. So um, not a ton of big things that come to mind. Me. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there are not a lot of like own goal, like goofs, gaffes that, that I can think of from the digital team, which is remarkable. We also did have a lovely and robust approvals process to make sure that didn't happen. So that might be a <laughs> big part of it. Um, from, from my specific world, one thing that... Um, we tried to do and didn't do it early enough and got into some kind of like internal stuff around, but that I really wish I had pushed on more was um, specific messaging um, to like 
Latino voters in South Florida. And some of the numbers like showed how I think, you know, the campaign broadly just couldn't maybe crack that nut properly. But I feel like the influencer digital social way of doing that was probably a miss certainly that I, you know, put my hand up and say like, uh, we could have and should have done done more on. Um, from my perspective, pretty much the same thing that um, Alok and Christian have said. Um, I think, I think to a point that um, Alok made earlier is that like, one thing that we did and we understood very much so on our side of the house was that like Twitter is not what normal like everyday voters care about like the conversations that are going on on Twitter are so niche and so political and it's like run by like an insular group of like journalists and political strategists um, but like your everyday person um, you know, who has a nine to five job probably isn't tuned in. And so what we did was specifically understand that and know that like, okay, Twitter is one platform where we're going to have to sort of operate differently um, and actually had a separate, um, entirely separate team who handled Twitter um, aside from mine, where it was like, okay, like this is more of a calm strategy platform than it is a creative platform where we're going to reach um, sort of undecided voters um, and, and the likes of that. And that's something that I really hope continues um, into sort of the fold of the next sort of campaigns is that understanding um, because it allowed us uh, and folks on, on my team and, and on other platforms to have just a bit more creativity and a bit more freedom in, in the things that we did um, in other spaces. Um, one thing that I was like really pleased to see, but I wish we got into it earlier, was actually um, more work done in the AR VR space. Um, we did some of that work on um, Snapchat and on Facebook, um, and we saw really great returns on the amount of people that were engaging with those sorts of lenses, but we didn't invest in it until later on in the campaign where we had hired enough designers and videographers, uh, producers who had AR VR experience. We didn't specifically hire for that. And it just so happened that a few people had that sort of experience and that we could tap into it as something that they thought was really interesting and they wanted to try and test. But it was actually really great. And it's something um, that I've um, told um, folks that I've worked with um, and who are probably planning on staying in campaigning um, to try and think about um, as a as a method for next um, for the next time. Um, as far as grassroots fundraising is concerned, um, and kind of like a cop out kind of way, uh, there are, I think very few things I would have changed about what we did there. Um, we had a lot of investment in our program and the resources that we needed from leadership uh, to really run a, a robust grassroots fundraising program. Um, I think having to pivot to a world where everything was digital made every aspect of the campaign was different than what any of us are typically familiar with. Um, and that went for fundraising as well. And so I think because we were in an environment where a good chunk of the fundraising that the campaign was doing. My team raised more than half of all of the money that the campaign raised over the course of the entire cycle, um, which is very much a new phenomenon in democratic campaign spaces. Normally, a lot of that money comes from um, major donors who write really big checks. And so the idea that most of the money that this campaign raised came from folks who were giving online $200 or less is a totally new thing that 
just has never happened before. Um, and so I, I really do credit the leadership of our team and the leadership of the campaign writ large for giving my team the space and the resources we needed to really run uh, a program that that had those results. Um, one thing that we did do on the later side that I wish that we could have done earlier, and I think this is really a facet to like, again, pivoting to an, a totally online campaign and the fact that we all joined the campaign on the later side as the general was gearing up. Um, but one of the touch points that we were trying to offer to supporters, in addition to donating to the campaign via email, SMS, or links on the website, however uh, they were going about that, was trying to empower supporters to become fundraisers themselves um, and giving them an additional touch point with the campaign. Obviously, we were not on the doors in the same way that we would be in a world where we're not living in a global pandemic. And so we were always looking for opportunities to bring more people into the fold and give them more opportunities to engage with the work that we're doing. Um, and so one thing that we established was this kind of uh, dashboard where grassroots supporters could make their own fundraising pages and raise money in their own community and within their own networks um, for prizes and various other opportunities with the campaign. And that to me felt like a really good, um, there's like a lot of untapped opportunity there. And I think if we had gotten our, we had gotten things together early enough to um, really lean in on that a bit more, I do think that that is, um, something that supporters across the country would have been very interested in doing. Can I also right. add one more thing? Yeah, go I on. know, um, you know, I already went, but I want to add one more thing from, from my perspective, which is, uh, if I could change one thing, I would have deleted Joe Biden's Twitter account. Sarah, Sarah alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, Twitter is a very different communications platform than other platforms. And um, I think in politics, we're kind of obsessed with Twitter. I think we can all agree on that. And um, really the main benefit of Twitter for a political campaign is to generate headlines, is to make news with it. And there's lots of ways to do that, but it did, um, you know, it, it, it uh, focused us too much on that platform versus others, which is where voters live and, and play. So, so I would have said we should delete it. And I think honestly, that would have been one of the strongest contrast points we could have provided against Donald Trump. So that is one concrete change I would make. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I think we have a few questions here. So we're gonna jump right into the questions. Um, and we have gotten a question from Ellie from 38 Degrees. Um, so she would love to know about your approach to mobilization versus persuasion. Uh, what were the key differences and any reflections on approaches which had particular success? And finally, how did you ensure different messages and approaches could coexist within the framework of a singular nation, national campaign with such a huge range of different audiences? So I think, yes, there's three questions here uh, that you guys can dive into. So I will say on the mobilization persuasion piece, um, there was, um, this is a piece of work that one, I think, every team on a campaign touches on, but there were lots of others who were focused on the specifics of how you do that balance. So um, I'm not sure we're the best answer, it, but um, our my team, we did um, launch what we called a persuasion program, um, which, you know, I think has been done before, but never maybe been titled that before. And I actually think, um, but, um, 
it was really the the uh, explicit um, kind of under, like uh, explicit final recognition that persuasion and mobilization are the same thing they must be when you say something. Um, it both mobilizes someone and persuades them at the same time. Um, and so we really tried not to make that difference. Um, um, so I guess that's answering your question by saying we didn't um, by and large, but also again, I think others on the campaign might answer that differently who are also touching that space. Yeah, to a, to a similar point to Alok, um, I would say, which also is very different from other folks on the campaign, particularly in the paid space, but on the organic space, we had an understanding particularly towards the end of this campaign when we knew that the most people were going to start to get engaged and we were going to get the most eyeballs um, we've ever had on sort of this content. An understanding that like, yes, we may have put out all of these policy positions two months ago, but uh, someone who isn't really tapped into the political um, atmosphere probably didn't see it, probably missed it, like didn't like wasn't thinking about like, oh, what's Joe Biden's like climate change policy, unless you're like very drilled down into the election that we were in, like you weren't looking for it. So when we came into that space where we were talking about mainly mobilization, I was very explicit with my team and we tried to come up with um, content ideas that were intersectional. So it was like, how can I persuade someone, or how can I mobilize someone with the understanding that I'm also trying to like give them context as to why they should be voting for Joe Biden on this issue. If you care about climate change, here's what Joe Biden's going to do. Go vote for him right now. You can early vote, um, you know, in, for the next two weeks, right? So it was for us very much about finding the intersectional points and understanding where the audience was um, at the moment that we were touching them um, during the campaign cycle. Thank you. Uh, is anyone else who wants to share uh, an answer to that? All right, cool. Um, I can move on to some other questions. Ask, oh, there we go. Uh, we'll start off with a question from Lorenzo. Uh, it says, hi all, how was the campaign messaging adjusted through digital platforms? Did you use some sort of message Bible to adapt and articulate the overarching messaging on different channels? So I would be curious to hear Sarah's answer, but I'll start. Um, no, we did not. I, I think if you follow the campaign, you would see that our messaging didn't really change. Very, I think when Joe Biden launched his campaign, he said he wants to restore the soul of the nation. That was the art overarching theme of his kind of closing argument as well. You know, that's not, I think, always going to happen. But I think because of this campaign and because of who Joe Biden was as a candidate and the kind of uh, candidate voters were, were reaching for, it worked out well. Um, but I think we, we believe that if we stuck talking about healthcare and the economy and then COVID, of course, um, uh, we, knew, we, were, we were certain voters wanted to, cared about those things and those things above all the other stuff. Um, and so we stuck to it. And so our message Bible didn't change. Um, my team asked me every day, hey, do we have message guidance on this? What are we talking about? And it was always just the economy, COVID, healthcare, and um, it worked. Yeah, and it's like, it's it can be sort of difficult when you go back to your team every single day and you're like, hey, can we find another way to talk about healthcare, the economy, and COVID? It's like, 
how does your creative brain spin, spin, especially when you're on a campaign where you're like working 20 hours a day, seven days a week from your home because you can't leave it. Um, but uh, to a love's point, it's true. We basically had like uh, a couple of core messages and tried to stick to that completely across the board, tried to find different creative ways to do that. Um, and then additionally, once again, try and find the intersectionality um, in some of these points, right, where it is like, hey, we might be want to talk about sort of um, COVID today, but can we talk about COVID and the disparities that happen and the fact that COVID is um, disproportionately affecting black and brown people, right? So it's like trying to find those nuances to include more of, um, I keep calling him the vice president, the president-elect's um, policies uh, within sort of this, these main sort of core buckets that we um, had talked about sticking to. I just want to put a like a finer point on the fact that it is so rare for a presidential candidate to begin his or her candidacy with a theme and have it be persistent and for him or her to then close and have like the victory announcement be the same drumbeat of a message. Um, I think it's a testament to like Joe Biden having read the moment and understanding what the country wanted to hear and needed to hear. And it's a testament to what Alok was sharing around like the uh, the team's ability to be creative about finding ways to message the same things in, in fresh ways. Uh, and, and it's not like this team uh, was unwilling to or unable to find rapid response moments to do. And maybe I can hand it over to Clark because I know she had some part in this, but like some of the rapid response moments that weren't even formally a part of maybe like one thing or another ended up being huge drivers of online fundraising or of viral moments like a fly on Mike Pence during one of the debates and like the opportunity to flip that into a great social moment, fundraising moment, and like larger, you know, capital I internet. Um, that was not something, of course, that anyone would have predicted, but it's not like we shied away from trying to own that um, because it wasn't on, on a you know, messaging Bible. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely, you know, major moments like Christian mentioned, um, the fly during the vice presidential debate in October was a huge fundraising moment for us. Um, you know, we we raised a million dollars on Twitter that night, I think, and we sold a lot of fly swatters. Um, and so things like that, we, I'm like really appreciative of my team um, and partnership with Sarah and her team and like being in a position to take advantage of moments like that um, because those do move the needle where I'm concerned um, with dollars raised. Um, but the rest of the fundraising program and all of the messaging that we use kind of stuck to um, a lot of the major tenets that Alok and Sarah have mentioned already, really telling the story of like who Joe Biden is and what restoring the soul of the nation means and like what that looks like and what a donation to this campaign um, can affect in our efforts to to get that done. So I think to Alok's point, the email program and SMS program throughout, um, there was not there was no real shift in how we were talking about things or what we were talking about. Um, just continuing to tell the story of who Joe Biden is and, and what electing him as president of the United States could mean for the country. 
Thank you. Um, we have a question from Bhavini, who was asking, was it deliberate tactic to avoid responding to Trump's Twitter tirades? Also, how was the communication to grassroots campaigns fundraising different from messaging to a wider undecided public? I'll answer the first part and then hand it over to Clark. Um, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, we didn't want to engage with Trump at his own game, honestly, in part because we knew it wasn't a game we'd win. Donald Trump is good at being bombastic and attention grabbing on Twitter. Joe Biden is president, or he's going to be president in 48 days because he's the opposite. He's someone who stayed and, and presidential. So we knew we wouldn't win at that game. And also we didn't want to paint Biden as someone who would um, sink to that level. I think on the fundraising piece, um, the work the work that I was doing there is like very different from um, what Alok and Sarah and Christian spent their time doing, which I think was really persuading people to get on board with Joe Biden conceptually. Um, for me, my thing is like, how do I get people who like really love Joe Biden and like care about the future of this country to become donors? Um, and those are two very different groups of people. And so like the way that you have to think about how you engage with them um, is really different. And so a lot of the work that we did um, was around acquisition, uh, mostly paid social and a, a bunch of other channels, which was like, how do we get a person who is a Democrat um, or who is you know tired of the Trump era and like is ready to move on to something different um, and how do we get that person to convert to uh, becoming a donor and the story that we tell there is a little bit different um, I think the story that my three colleagues are telling is like this is what Joe Biden's America will look like and like do you want to be part of that America um, and and my thing was kind of like yes this is what Joe Biden's America will look like and like this is what it'll take to get us there and like can you help us do the work that it'll take to get us there. Um, and so it's just a little bit of the nitty gritty of like, we need to get organizers in these states. Like it's supremely important for us to take Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Here are the resources that we need to be able to do that. Can you support us? Um, which is a little bit more in the weeds. And I have found that when you treat that, that bucket of supporters with respect and like they know what's happening because they do, grassroots supporters are infinitely smarter, I think, than most practitioners give give them credit for. Um, they do step up in a really big way, but you have to make that commitment to being transparent with them about what their support in a financial way means and why you're asking for it. Thank you. Uh, so there's a, a few questions about uh, social media platforms and Facebook as a platform and Twitter as a platform. As you were saying, like Twitter might just fit one type of, like political left, as someone's asking. So did you see kind of a decline of um, so certain, um, the relevance on certain platforms such as Facebook and Twitter? And did you in that way use other platforms um, to kind of uh, move your campaign uh, forward? And if so, uh, some people are asking which, which platforms do you think galvanize the most support or the most new support? Uh, if I may ask that. I think decline is like a, an interesting way to put it, and I don't think necessarily particularly correct. I think it's a course correction um, from um, other uh, campaigns and in, in years where the algorithms really um, favored Facebook in a way that um, I think all of us pretty much know um, was inflated. Um, and so as a result, I think it's just coming 
back to reality of what um, it truly is. But my thought process to this is that every platform had its own unique like use case, right? The audiences were so different depending on like what the platform was in terms of social. And so as a result, like I had and, and worked with my team to create a specific strategy for each, for every single one. So in particular on, on Facebook, um, you know, what those algorithms were telling us is that people, depending on who they are, where they are, what kind of internet they have, um, internet connection they have, they're seeing different um, pieces of content. And so for me as a practitioner um, on social, I can, I basically understood that I could use the same piece of content or similar content and break it down in three different ways, depending on who needed to see it. And as a result, lift up the amount of volume that we were getting on Facebook in particular, and saw a steep increase in the amount of engagement um, that we were getting in content because of that, because it was targeting specific people. But that's not a thing that I can do on Instagram, right? So it's very interesting in the sense where like every single um, every single social platform has its own strategy. Um, and as a result, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, I had a specific strategist that was pretty much dedicated to each one because I wanted them to drill down into the best practices for that specific, um, for that specific platform um, and literally like live, breathe that platform for Joe Biden for a number of months. In terms of um, pieces, uh, sort of platforms that I thought really were interesting this year, for my team in particular, it was Instagram. Instagram um, had some of the most exponential growth um, in terms of just straight up audience and the amount of engagement that we were seeing, the amount of variety in the pieces of content that we could get there versus four years ago in terms of Instagram stories, reels. Um, Reels became a big part of our strategy, um, even specifically asking time um, for the president-elect to make content that we knew would be adapted very well for Reels in particular. Um, and so that was a, a space where we were really able to play in ways that I think we hadn't before um, in other campaigns. Well, and Sarah, you also got the IG account of like, our, our secondary Instagram account, I mean, and like how you even got that, I feel like it's a great story. Yeah, that that's an interesting one because um, if you followed us on Twitter, we specifically had two sort of Twitter accounts. We had our main Joe Biden Twitter account, and then we also had our team Joe um, Twitter account, which was much more of a place to engage our supporters, really um, speak in a way that wasn't presidential. It was like, hey, I am your supporter captain, like, let's go do the damn thing, right? Um, versus, I don't know, I'm Joe Biden and here's the messaging you need to know when I become president of the United States. Um, and we didn't have that on Instagram. We, we knew that Instagram was really coming up for us as a platform that we wanted to engage in a lot more um, and in a way where we could have the same sort of uh, supporter and enthusiasm and engagement platform. Um, and so instead of starting from zero on a platform, it was like, what, two months before an election, um, we decided to go, or I decided to go like trolling, um, essentially for different accounts that I thought could be um, good as like a, why don't we potentially take over this account? Um, the first one that we saw was literally um, at Team Joe on um, Instagram. That was owned by a 
random dude in Tennessee um, who really wanted nothing to do with us. Um, and so we were like, all right, plan B, what are, where are we going? Um, and I found this account that was um, at Team Joe Biden. Um, and it was run by this, I kid you not, 15-year-old um, supporter out of California who was a Pete Buttigieg supporter. And when Pete Buttigieg decided that he was going to um, support the vice president, president-elect, um, he essentially was like, I'm going to start this like fan account for Joe Biden and ended up creating an account that uh, by the time that we took it over had about 70,000, 80,000 fans on it. And he was just creating content that sort of mimicked what we were doing on the app Joe Biden account, but doing it in a way that was sort of a little bit more grassrootsy. So we engaged with him. We told him like, hey, we really want to start a supporter enthusiasm account. We love what you're doing. Um, you know, is there a way that you would let us take over the account and make it an official platform? Um, he said yes, super enthusiastically because he wanted to help the campaign. And we started this um, account not from zero, but started it from a place um, of having some like concrete audience that we could start engaging with, get them to bring in more of their um, friends who were coming on board to the Joe Biden camp, uh, like, you know, in the last two months of the campaign. And then additionally, um, obviously that kid was so smart. Um, and so we hired him as an intern um, on our team, unpaid intern, and he created content for us um, until the very end of the campaign um, and was a very key member of our team because he really understood as a 15 year old, the Gen Z perspective to Joe Biden. And then also um, had this great experience which is like creating content already. So that was how we got our second Instagram account. It's sort of wild. Um, but um, it was one of those things where like, we knew we had to drill down on Instagram. We knew we needed to do more on Instagram. And so it's the reason that we decided to go um, create a secondary account. Thank you so much. Um, we have gotten a few, I mean, a lot of more questions. We're gonna try to go through all of them. Uh, but there's a question from Paul who's done this question um, much earlier. Um, how did you balance being so quick to respond with uh, managing a consistent message with getting uh, with getting the candidate or others sign off on any specific communication? And there's also a question to, to like, how do you actually stick to a message? How do you execute the messages? Um, did you, for example, I know there was a podcast created as well. How did you stick to all the messaging in all different platforms and making sure that it's uh, consistent? So the benefit of having consistent messaging is that everyone knows what the messaging is from the top to the bottom. And so it was actually pretty easy to stay on message because everyone knew it wasn't changing. So even when something happened, like the fly swatter incident, you know, we pivoted that to voter turnout. Aside from the policy stuff, obviously voter turnout is a major message of the campaign. So we created I will flywillvote.com, which is, you know, how we um, redirected to islevote.com, which was our voter registration platform. So, so I think, you know, there was rarely a moment where a um, moment would break in the news and we'd have to respond quickly and we'd say something that was off message. Um, we always found a way to tie it back to our core themes. Um, and that's also what made those moments work, right? We weren't just going viral for the sake of going viral. We were making sure that when we went, when we went viral, um, it moved the needle on, on something we knew voters cared about. And in terms of the internal approval stuff and, you know, um, yeah, so that, that kind of explains the internal approval stuff. You know, 
things like, um, you know, you mentioned the podcast and I see, I've seen a couple of questions on the chat about the podcast. We had to retire the podcast for a number of reasons. Um, but um, I think when we did attempt it, um, it was successful. It's something Joe Biden um, was really good at. And so um, we knew we couldn't keep up the kind of uh, the cadence needed for a successful podcast, but we knew it was a successful medium for us. And so Christian and his team actually took on, um, you know, trying to find other kind of new media podcast opportunities for, um, for Joe Biden. I think one of our most successful media appearances at the end um, was uh, his appearance on Brene Brown's podcast. So we did much more of that um, instead of hosting our own, which, um, you know, didn't have the audience that we needed at the end of the campaign. And I think to Alok's point, like, I, I don't think people should be afraid of like trying something. And if it doesn't work, like moving away from it, or if it's like, if it's not uh, a good, like, I don't know, like use of your energy or your team's energy, like, if you think there's something more effective, go do that. You need to do the most effective thing for your strategy. Um, and if that's like using the candidate's time to do a podcast, then amazing. If that's having him do reels, that's great. If it's having him go on Brene like Brown's podcast instead of, you know, um, taking the time to do your own, like, I, I, I think that there should be uh, more of an air of experimentation when it comes to these things um, that sometimes people are just afraid of because of the media backlash of like, oh, what's going to happen if this reporter is like, are you still doing that podcast? Like, it doesn't matter. You need to do what's most effective for your voters, not for the random political reporters. Thank you. Um, There's a question from Mark. Um, and he asked, what was the process of one, identifying a damaging narrative emerging online from Trump's campaign or elsewhere, two, deciding whether or not to respond to it, and three, determining the response? I'll just say from a fundraising standpoint, um, in, in the later months of the campaign, I think because we had done such a good job of establishing the fundraising messaging um, around so much like Joe Biden is good and here's why Joe Biden is good and here's why Joe Biden needs your support. Um, the donors that we talked to on a day-to-day -day basis were not actually that interested in what we had to say about Trump or what Trump was doing, um, which actually I think made our lives pretty easy because we just, like everyone has been saying, we just got to continue telling the story of who Joe Biden is and what Joe Biden wants to do um, and didn't have to actually pay a ton of attention to what Trump was doing or saying or whatever nonsense he was getting up to. Um, obviously there are some moments that can't be ignored, um, but for the most part, I think we were able to, from a fundraising perspective, just keep our heads down and stay stick with the the pro Joe Biden more positive messaging that seemed to move donors more. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think you know the the platform we we talked most about Donald Trump was Twitter, and that's because um, that's where people care about what Donald Trump's doing. Um, but um, we we you know, realize pretty quickly that there's so many people highlighting all the bad things that Donald Trump is doing that we don't need to do that. And doing that only alienates folks who might be thinking, oh man, Donald Trump, 
I really don't like him, but I'm a lifelong Republican. What do I do? We wanted to leave room for those people to have a pathway to our campaign. And I think the more we talked about Donald Trump saying silly, dumb things, the more those folks were like, oh, they're just the same. So, so we intentionally avoided that. And really, if you look at what we posted on Facebook or Instagram um, or other platforms or um, the kinds of content we created for our partners, um, there wasn't a ton of Donald Trump, unless of course, um, it was explicitly made to be about Donald Trump. And we kind of kept that, um, we created it, but we wouldn't really make it so obvious that it was the campaign behind it, which was more of Christian's dark arts. Thank you. I think there's a question for Christian as well. Um, Anonymous attendee is really fascinated about uh, your role and as, is asking how do you navigate it forming those kind of partnerships and how you deal that with that kind of transparency and ethics around creating those kind of partnerships. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we tried to be um, expansive and follow a bit of what was just shared where um, we would test out a partner um, and see what works and then invest further um, if, if we saw positive results. So we tried to hit a wide range of you know, what we called coalitions or like affinity groups, different, different um, demographics. And we did that based off of um, everything from um, kind of like, you know, ethnic groups to interests to um, even, even like format. So, um, you know, we, we worked for example uh, with some like, bigger name publishers, someone like a, a BuzzFeed comes to mind, uh, or some of the Condé Nast publications, like big titles and media publications, some of which have been around for a long time, some of which have just a huge presence on the internet. Um, and we, we ended up like, you know, doubling down on ones that we saw good results with. So we, we had, um, you know, Kamala Harris do a video um, with Hero Like, which is one of the BuzzFeed channels that's specific um, to the Latino audience. And then what we we found is that the BuzzFeed working relationship was really good, really fruitful, and we ended up doing a, you know, a whole host of other things with them, in some cases totally different in format. So BuzzFeed is also known for kind of like its, um, its quiz style. Um, and so we would have like a set of quizzes targeted to certain battleground states around, um, did, you, did you know, or like, um, uh, you know, five ways you know you're from Pennsylvania when, or something like that. And, and the quiz format, of course, had like, Pennsylvania, almost like trivia or fun facts that really only Pennsylvanians might know, but also found, I think, a really organic and natural way to then provide information to voters around the specifics of how Pennsylvania's mail-in ballots worked or something like that. Um, so in those cases, these were kind of like branded content and they were labeled as such. Um, and a lot of what we did with partners that was unpaid um, was more broadly about like building a relationship, uh, vetting the partner, both with our internal official vetting team as well as more broadly if they reflected what we you know saw as a valuable audience um and and building rapport like it it sometimes comes down to having the chance to work with somebody and get to know them um and and like really put a point on um where the shared values are between the campaign and uh, and their audience and I, I think you have to rely upon the partner um, a media publisher in particular, you have to rely on them to know their audience best and uh, to discover those points of overlapping interest or alignment. And again, there were a number of groups where perhaps like it wasn't a 100% overlap. You know, we worked with, we worked with Future Earth, um, like a, a, a very um, pro-environment young um, uh, group, 
Um, and I think they probably, not probably, they, they most certainly would have wanted uh, Joe Biden to be farther to the left on a number of environmental issues. But they also were, I think, you know, really smart to think about the areas of alignment and realize correctly that um, our campaign's position was far, far, far closer to what they wanted as their goals than, than what Donald Trump's are. And so um, I think that's like a, you meet people in the middle and like meet people where they are, it goes like both, both directions. Thank you. I guess uh, on, on that topic, uh, Emma is also asking how about if you can speak more about how you engage with um, influencers and their, that strategy. What kind of assets of information did you provide for influencers, celebrities or other partners uh, so you know how you best can engage with them in the campaigns? So, right. On the on the identification side, um, there are a, a lot of vendors who will um, like try to sell their tools around automation. Um, and I, I don't think that one should put a lot of stock in the, or one shouldn't put a lot of stock in those just as standalone tools themselves. Uh, they are enormously helpful and really powerful to like pare down an enormous set of potential influencers to the ones that you want. We had a really, really hardworking team of people who went and did the next layer, the equally important layer to go from a still very large number of influencers in a particular set when you can filter based off of like high level things like followers or where they're based or you know kind of like uh, uh like first order descriptors but the nuanced part that like a team has to do and people who really understand social and understand an audience um have to do the next level so i would say people are coming to you saying like this is the one stop shop it's a, it can do everything for you um there's still enormous value but i would just be hesitant like thinking about that as like the, the magic thing that you can wave a wand and have and have the perfect influencer set that you need. Um, and we provided to people to answer the second part of the question with everything from uh, talking points and some of the positions like our, our website, even if you went on the public part of the website, um, our policy team wrote really, really detailed, sometimes like multiple page length write ups on almost every topic um, and every position that, that that Joe Biden had. So we would sometimes package those up and give that. Um, we would sometimes give um, more prescriptive um, language or things that we thought would be relevant. Um, but ultimately, uh, what we found is that people, uh, influencers, were in one of two camps. It was either like a general um, uh, opportunity to support, um, or it was something that that it was a mobilization message um, and like generally trying to you know, drive their followers and supporters to uh, learn how to vote, register how to vote and kind of like a GOTV, um, yeah. Thank you. Um, there's a question for Sarah. Um, could you talk about the analytic tools you use both for paid and for organic, CrowdTangler for Facebook, for example, and what were the KPS that you were looking at uh, both for your own content and for the Trump campaigns to gauge the success of, gauge the success of specific messaging? Yeah, so I can speak to the um, organic part of this since that's all my team touched. Um, so from the organic side, um, to be quite honest, a lot of the analytics work that we did was straight from the platform. Um, it's like the best source of information you can get and um, oftentimes will give you much more in-depth um, information just because of the API limitations um, that they give to third parties. The other um, sort of two platforms that um, I used were CrowdTangle, of course, um, and then uh, the last one was one called Measure Studios. 
It's a, um, it's a piece of product that comes out of a Paladin software. And essentially what it does is allows you a very visual way to understand like what content is overperforming versus underperforming. Um, I am of super visual person. <laughs> and so for me, like even things like just a breakdown in like green, yellow, red um, is very easy for me to understand like, okay, that's overperforming. Like let's drill down into that, double click in, like what's happening and gave me a lot of very quick pieces of information that I could give to leadership. They do a lot of the calculations on their own as to like the amount of over, like the amount overperforming. So I could say, you know, to, our um, leadership team, when they asked me, like, how is this piece of content doing? Or, you know, we just launched this thing with uh, President Obama and his team is asking us for analytics information. It was an easy way to like literally go in and just like grab all of that info very quickly. The other thing that I really liked about the platform, and sorry, I stand this platform, um, is uh, the fact that it brings in all of our, uh, it brought in all of our platforms um, within it. So like, you could literally look at this. If you posted the same piece of content, say a video on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you could bring in all of those and compare them um, side by side um, in a way that made it much easier than if I was gonna go and have to dig into all three platforms um, individually. Um, the one thing I would say is a detriment into the sort of like part of the fact that all of us came in very late into the campaign. We were all hired um, quite late um, and when we were already in sort of general election um, was the lack of time to then go vet and get more tools, um, to be honest. I think it's something that should be done quite early and that people need to like invest some time into their um, strategic planning around finding the tools that actually really um, work for you and will give you the KPIs that you need. Um, in terms of things that we looked at, we specifically looked a lot at engagement um, and a lot at, uh, in honestly, um, shares was one of our big things. We wanted to see the impact of how people were sharing things. And if they were sharing things, it, mean, it meant that they really cared about it enough to sort of broadcast that and become megaphones to their audiences about it. And so that was like incredibly impactful for us to understand as well and was one of the main things that my team looked at. And it's the reason why on platforms like Facebook and I'm sorry, on platforms like Instagram um, and um, platforms like um, uh, Snapchat, we specifically did AR filters, which you can share. Sorry, my dog is in the background. Um, and uh, also uh, did a lot of the sort of carousels that you were seeing in activist circles where you could put in a lot of information that was incredibly shareable um, in those spaces like IG as well. So sharing and, and engagement. It's not very exciting, but it, it is um, the main things that we looked at. Thank you. Uh, we have time for three more questions, and then I'm going to end with my own question because I have the power to do so. Um, so there's a question uh, for um, Luke. Uh, you mentioned wanting to disengage on Twitter. Are there other platforms or strategies you could emphasize taking into account the risk and difficulties with your fate being tied to the algorithms on Facebook slash Instagram and their document and leading towards the right? So I would say any platform where we know voters are living, which really is every platform except Twitter. I mean, no, it, it, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, um, um, Google, um, like any, any, anywhere where you and I go when we're bored and, and I guess not sadly, I was going to say sadly, but 
people who go on Twitter when they're bored tend to be um, people who have some professional reason to do so. I think the stat is like 3% of voters are on Twitter and 1% of those people are actually ones pushing out tweets. So it's just such a niche um, audience and even the numbers are pretty small that it just doesn't make sense. So I would say every other platform. And I think, you know, I don't think, obviously the, the Facebook algorithm algorithm's a black box, but I don't think it optimizes or, or pushes people towards right-leaning content. It pushes people towards content that is going to get um, engagement. And we found that, um, you know, you don't have to push out the kind of hate-filled stuff that the right does that gets engagement to do well. You can push out a video of Joe Biden with his dog um, or Joe Biden having a really human moment with a kitty man on the trail and that will do just as well. So I, I don't, I'm not worried about folks being able to compete on those platforms with positive content. It's just a matter of prioritizing them. Yeah, and to add that, Bhavani is also asking if there if you see any campaigns not having a significant social media component in the future. So what's the future of actually social media and platforms uh, with campaigning, in your opinion? And do you see that um, there might be, with this problematic relationship with taking down content of misinformation, well, do, you think, do you think that will create some kind of barrier for campaigning, for future campaigners who are all joined in today um, uh, in uh, moving on with yeah, I mean, their political campaigns? I don't see a future in which a campaign wouldn't use social media. I do see a future in which many more campaigns adopt um, stuff we did around distributed content partnerships, right? I think the trick will be how could we, it is much more efficient to reach voters um, by feeding content to things they already follow or platforms they're already on or, or, or other people they already want to hear from than it is to convince them to follow at joebiden.com or at Joe Biden on Twitter. So that's definitely the future. It's kind of an obvious one. It's something that the private sector really does really well. It's something that Christian helped us do really well. Um, and I think a lot of campaigns will be doing it in the future. Thank you. Um, final question to, um, to Clark. Uh, let me just find this here. Um, so how have the changes to interest-based targeting on Facebook ad, ad platform changed your work? Have you ended up using lookalikes more or have you just worked out how to use smaller number of interest-based options in a smarter way? I would say it's definitely a little bit of both. Um, so in the places where it made sense for us to do interest-based targeting, like like Alok said, if we've got a video of Joe Biden and his dogs, like maybe we do interest-based targeting um, for folks who are pet lovers and lean in that way. We definitely did do a ton of work with lookalikes, especially because the ads program that I was overseeing was specifically mining for donors. Um, and the best way to find someone who might be a donor is like the composite of people who already donate to you. Um, and so that was a lot of the work that we did on uh, on Facebook. Uh, look Lookalikes was our primary kind of targeting parameters. Thank you. Um, I know we're coming to an end and we had a little um, um, little technical difficulties in the beginning, but I have some questions as well I want to ask. And this goes with one question John has asked as well, is that how did you actually come up with like so different and interesting tactics with fresh content and creative content while working from home? I assume you guys work from home as well. Um, and was it hard to like find um, 
find out what to do? How did you kind of um, expand your creative gauge and um, while doing it from home? Do you have like, I see, because we have um, we have local elections coming up in the UK soon. And um, all of us are kind of wondering how is it that we can work and that we can um, uh, put people to uh, fundraise to um, um to uh, yeah, I mean to be part of uh, political campaigning, but doing it from home. Sometimes you lose your creative space. So yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering how you guys went on with it to work uh, work from home, I assume, but also trying to get into your creative space. I think for me, um, because we had we had to pivot out of necessity to a world where everything was virtual it kind of made it slightly easier to be creative because some of the stuff that we typically would do in a world where things are not 100% virtual are just like out of the window. Like you can't do those things anymore. What is it that we can do instead? And so I think it presented at least like my team with like a really fun challenge of thinking through some like brand new opportunities to um, provide supporters with stuff that would still excite them even in a world where things are virtual. And some of the things that we did, we leaned really heavily into what we called grassroots fundraisers, which is not a thing really that existed, I think, before the pandemic hit, but really allowed us to like have a, a room like with, you know, Joe Biden and Barack Obama talking and answering questions. Um, and tens of thousands of people are able to join. And like, that's just not something that we would have been able to facilitate in um, a world where folks are doing gatherings like that in person, like we're not getting like 100,000 people in a room with these two. Um, and so being able to facilitate stuff like that virtually was really very cool um, in the place of like opportunities where we normally would have maybe someone um, enter a contest to meet Joe Biden, like get coffee with Joe Biden or the thing that like we typically had been doing for years and years past, like that's not a thing we can do now. Um, and so like offering folks like the chance to like do a video call with Joe Biden or have him call um, after he gets off the debate stage or like in really high intensity moments, like still being able to give that personal touch to people, but in a very different way than what we typically had been doing. To me, I think like, it like engaged a different part of my brain than one that like I've been doing this for a long time and the the playbook that I was used to using was just like not effective and so being in a position to create a new playbook um, I think actually was like very compelling for me. I'll jump in and I, I agree with Clark that I think a lot of it was actually much easier to it was easier to be creative we we did most of our work on slack and um I think that really democratized our ability to be creative. Um, I think that's true for any business, but it was certainly true for our campaign um, in this virtual world. I think, you know, if we're in a campaign office and we had a big event coming up and I wanted to brainstorm ideas, I probably would have called Clark, Christian and Sarah into an office and we would have talked about it. But because we were all working on Slack and, and all virtual, um, um, we, you know, would open things up like that to, you know, Slack channels of 200 people and say, who has ideas on this? Let's talk about it. And I think that just became really natural and easy. Um, and so I think the like creativity generation piece was actually significantly easier and something I think I personally am going to hold on to when we go back into the office as a kind of method for bringing in more people to the creative process. I'll say just about distributed overall to tack on. 
there are probably a lot of people, even on this call, myself included, maybe Sarah, who probably wouldn't have been able to join the campaign were it not for the remote nature of it. And like it also provided the opportunity for broadly more diversity of thought, which can come across so many axes, but one of them is location. Like I'm just trying to think like on my team alone, there were probably six, seven states represented maybe. Um, and that's just one obviously version of like what the, the diversity and like backgrounds can mean. Um, but, but I think that's like a silver lining version. And despite the fact that all of our meetings were exactly like this one over screens, it's, it's also really like, like, I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit corny, but it was really nice to like get new friends in the, in the four people that are here, uh, who you get to know really well, despite the fact that you've never met probably, uh, in, in person. Yeah, I think at one point I had a staff member on every single time zone, which was not easy. Um, and especially um, for <laughs> Alok and I who were West Coasters, um, waking up at before the sun, basically, um, to start our day. I've heard that we are we are in five different time zones today. So um, I guess you're used to it, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but yeah, I mean... Um, I, I do, my, I think I want to ask the last thing is just to kind of ask, what did you actually personally, all of you find the most um, fun, I would say, uh, with your work? I mean, I know you guys got into the campaign quite late. Um, I know there's some people have asked, have you slept? <laughs> have you slept at all? Um, so what have you learned uh, that you will, you think you'll take with you and that's something we, us campaigners also in the UK, can learn from uh, that you think you could share a piece of knowledge for us. I think it is, it's kind of funny um, that we have been talking kind of throughout this, this whole hour and a half session about, you know, staying on message and really driving home the message um, consistently across the board as like one of the major tenets, like that is something we've discussed multiple times and like that was our North Star for the campaign. Um, and so in that same vein, I think like that was huge to the work that we were able to do, just like being authentic in the, the work that we were doing and the story that we were telling offering folks, you know, a level of transparency that we were able to get leadership comfortable with uh, and bringing people into the fold in like, you know, a deep and meaningful way um, is I think replicable if you are willing to, again, be transparent and establish those relationships with folks and invest in um, the program work. Uh, again, digital is not just like free money. This is program work that we were able to accomplish because we had leadership that invested in the resources we needed to actually run effective programs. Um, and having a candidate like Joe Biden uh, and, and singular messaging that we were able to stick to throughout, I think really made the difference. Um, and it's definitely something that I will take with me as I continue down this road. Yeah, I think um, somewhat to that point, this was an interesting campaign um, in the sense where like our candidates were like polar opposites, um, right? And, and I think one thing that has always been very um, compelling to me about Joe Biden, despite the fact that he wasn't my first choice in candidate, um, and I think that um, I think that's also 
something that's interesting. Uh, a decent amount of the folks uh, who worked on this campaign were supporters or working for other candidates, um, but united around Joe Biden because partially, like partially because he's like an empathetic leader. And the one thing that we always like took very seriously on our platforms was the idea of like making sure that his authentic self was coming through in everything that we did. Um, and that we, the content that we were putting out was very much in his voice, in his message, um, without resorting to being mean and mean spirited in the way that our opponent was. Um, and I, there are people who really like just have very contrasting ideas. And I think that um, a lot of people for us on the far right um, in the US have taken it in a direction where it's just very mean spirited and it's very, um, you see the racial tensions bubbling up um, and we just wanted to not be that. And we stuck to that the entire campaign even when people were trying to goad us into a reaction into the wild Twitterverse. Um, it was about sticking to who your candidate was, what he believed in, the fact that he really honestly, truly believed that he, uh, that we needed someone to restore the soul of the nation and bring us back into being more empathetic and kind, um, I think was important and something that can be replicated in the idea where it's like, you really just need to take your candidate and, and be an extension of them um, and, and embody that in everything that you do. Um, if not, it will come off contrived and will come off very inauthentic. Um, like we weren't gonna be like Joe Biden, we weren't gonna have like Joe Biden like dabbing on the internet, like that's not him, um, you know, and it's going to be um, him having very realistic, kind, empathetic conversations with voters. And that's what's going to be the thing um, that really compelled people to vote for him. And also, I say that as someone who my previous candidate did dab on the internet, it wasn't great. Uh, anyone else who wants to share the last thought um, of what they found really interesting and found something they want to take with them? Uh, I'll, I'll say very briefly that I think um, trying, uh, not even just trying new things, trying things that feel a little weird, um, not like a forced, like I'm dabbing because I feel like that's what the young people do. I mean, something that feels a bit outside your comfort zone, maybe a good way. And each candidate's going to know and like each digital team and leadership is going to know what those things are and where those like bounds are. But trying those are the things that can result in um, the, the, the best, um, the best results at the end. Um, I'll also be brief. I hope that the lesson taken from the campaign and really all campaigns that we're running in the cycle is that, um, digital should run the table, uh, if not get a big seat at it. We were all brought on, um, you know, right when the pandemic hit, when the campaign went virtual, honestly, well-resourced, given tons of um, leeway to try new things, um, spend money, and it was wonderful. All of that was because we were forced to run a virtual campaign, um, kind of soup to nuts. Um, but I hope that when we get back to normal campaigning, people realize, oh, the internet has potential that's uh, uh, far larger than um, kind of offline tactics oftentimes, and people should remember that. Thank you so much um, for um, this one hour and a half. Um, I've learned so much. And I think, I mean, I've seen people here in the chat uh, going away with um, uh, some comments and engaging. So it would be, it's been really good. 
Um, again, I want to thank you, uh, Clark, Sarah, Luke, and Christian for joining. Apologies again for the little uh, hiccup in the beginning. Um, I also want to thank 89up um, and 38 degrees who's sponsored the event. 89up has done amazing work for us, especially with our Heroes of Resistance um, website. Uh, we also have, I mean, it's been a tough year for us too. Um, Liron, if you could please post our Hope Action Fund, please become a member, support our work uh, so we can make sure that we can have these kind of events uh, at some point as well. Again, I want to thank you all for joining and thank you for the panelists, uh, for our members, um, for everyone uh, joining today.